to you who'd read my songs of war and only hear of blood and fame. I'll say, you've heard it said before, war's hell, and if you doubt the same, today I found in Mummet's wood a certain cure for lust of blood, where, propped against a shattered trunk and a great mess of things unclean, sat a dead Bosch, he scowled and stunk, with clothes and face a sodden green. Big-bellied, spectacled, crop-haired, dribbling black blood from nose and beard. Lieutenant Robert Graves, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, from the book Fairies and Fusiliers, Mamet's Wood, The Psalm, July 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 12, Psalm, Tomorrow We Must Go to Take Some Cursed Wood. This show is free and independent because we don't have any corporate sponsors. I'd gladly take some. Until then, it is so great to be back at it, sharing this story with you. So let's get into the trenches. Like we discussed last episode, for the British 4th Army to be ready to hit the German 2nd position north of the River Somme, three objectives would need to be cleared in order to have a secure jump-off line for the 3rd, 15th, and 8th Corps. These three objectives, from east to west, were Tronswood, Mametswood, and the village of Contomaison. These would need to be taken first before anything major could really have a hope of success. To the north, the reserve army would be striking at Ovier as flanking support. The charred and muddy ruins of Contomaison were finally seized from the Germans on July 10th after a bloody struggle that at its height saw the Germans working to level the village with artillery. To the east, the British blasted Tron's wood and its defenders into a mix of tree stumps and bloody jelly. The Tommies of the British 30th Division were largely chewed up in this fight, losing 2,000 men trying to gain possession of the place. The Germans there put up quite the fight, requiring six attacks until the remains of the wood were taken by the 18th Division on July 14th. Between Tron's Wood and Contomaison lay Mamet's Wood, the third objective that needed to be cleared in order to hit the German second line. Like Tron's wood, but twice as bad, Mamet's wood really showed what grinding down the German army would look like and what it would take. Described as a menacing wall of gloom by the writer Siegfried Sassoon, Mamet's wood was a plot of forest totaling some 220 acres that sat about two kilometers east of Contomaison. It had a highly irregular but boxy shape that measured roughly one mile by three quarters of a mile at its widest. If it could be roughly divided into a top and bottom half, the top half would be off-center and box-shaped. The bottom half would be triangular, and at its eastern point, there was a bulge of forest growth named the Hammerhead on British maps, so named 
because a clearing cut into this bulge left a shape looking like a hammerhead. Made up of thick hawthorn and briar trees, Mametswood presented the image of a solid wall of green foliage in the summer of 1916. The trees could be up to 40 feet high and thick, blocking out a significant amount of light. Mamet's wood had received some shelling, of course, but the woods were so thick they hid the damage, for now. With two years of neglect due to the war, the undergrowth and the wood lay thick and tangled, and in priming the place for battle, the Germans had laid barbed wire everywhere on the forest floor. In the wood, there were three rides, cart paths, that allowed movement inside the forest. Two of these rides ran east to west, while a third ran north to south. In the upper northwest corner of the wood, a light railway line cut its way into the forest before coming back out on the opposite side. Mamet's wood lay on high ground, surrounded by open fields. Attacks from the east, west, or south, which was where all British attacks would come from, meant exposing troops coming downhill from their trenches into little valleys before having to face the upward slope going straight towards the forest. To the east, just as we discussed last episode with Contomaison on the west side, the Germans had sighted interlocking fields of fire that would shred any oncoming infantry attacks. Machine gun teams lay to the northeast of Mamet's wood in flat iron cops, sabo cops, and trenches that would run parallel to the direction of British attacks. But none of that was yet known. Mamet's wood hadn't been listed as an objective for the 1st of July because it was thought it was too big a target. And in that sector of the Somme front, the objectives for the 1st of July actually hadn't yet been reached. After the day of fighting in Fricor, on and into the evening of the 1st, the battered Germans decided to withdraw during the night into a new trench line just to the north called Railway Alley by the British. British patrols, after finding Fricourt free of Feldgrau, kept pushing through the shell-plowed fields. A day of small, local fighting on the 2nd led to the Tommies having reached their original objectives a day and a half late, but they had made it. The Germans, still disorganized and reeling from the blow given them on the 1st, were then flushed out of Bottom Wood and Railway Alley on the 3rd of July. As the Germans pulled back again, they retaliated with a firestorm of artillery on the new British positions. To the left of Bottom Wood, Tommies of the 21st Division assaulted Crucifix Trench and Shelter Wood, seizing both. The attack was especially successful because during it an entire German infantry battalion was captured along with its commander and staff, leaving a gap in the German line in the crucial sector of Quadrangle Trench and Mamet's Wood. New patrols pushed out on the afternoon of the 3rd, reported back that both Quadrangle Trench and Mamet's Wood were empty. Word was sent all the way to 15th Corps headquarters for new instructions at 2 p.m. Here was a critical moment. A gap consisting of a major objective in the enemy's line lay open for exploitation. Capitalizing on this opportunity would need daring and quick thinking and rapid communication. Well, 
I'm sure the daring was there, but the other two components were not. In fairness, the areas just behind the front lines were a dangerous mess to traverse, and even the rear areas of pre-1 July were no doubt a confused jumble of dead, wounded, fresh troops moving up and exhausted and relieved soldiers trudging back through winding and twisting trenches. And possibly, when the message finally made it to Core HQ, perhaps its urgency wasn't readily understood. Or there were meetings that delayed the delivery of the message. Whatever it was, it was six hours before Corps Command even issued new orders. Those orders were for units of the 7th Division to grab the southern end of Mamet's Wood immediately. The 1st Battalion of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers of such famous writers and poets like Robert Graves, Siegfried Sassoon, David Jones, and Heath Wynne. And the 2nd Battalion of those Royal Irish were assigned the task. With a late receipt of orders, and the required coordination of thousands of men needed for just such an operation on a World War I battlefield, it didn't go as planned. The Second Royal Irish attacked as planned and went toe-to-toe with the Germans in Strip Trench, but the Royal Welsh were late in arriving. As a result, the Irish had to pull back on the night of the 3rd to the 4th as they were in a terribly exposed position. But the work of clearing the ground south of Mamet's Wood kept on, and the opportunity to seize the wood unopposed faded with every hour. Heavy summer rain on the 4th turned the battlefield into a morass that effectively halted all British attacks that day. On the other side, units of the Prussian Lair Regiment from the German 3rd Division and elements of the 28th Reserve Division were moving towards Mamet's Wood to hold the line. On the afternoon of the 4th, British artillery began pounding quadrangle and wood trenches, working to cut the wire in front of those positions. Later, at 15 minutes past midnight, a second crushing bombardment hit the German trenches. At 45 minutes past midnight on the 5th, elements of four British battalions, with the 1st Royal Welsh and the 2nd Royal Welsh among them on the right, attacked from the line of Shelter and Bottom Woods to the west of the wood. They were to grab quadrangle and wood trenches in the fields just to the west of Mamet's Wood. As soon as the barrage lifted and the Germans were pinned down by a shower of machine gun bullets, the Tommies scrambled out of their muddy trenches and into no man's land. The attack was a mixed success. On the left, the 10th Lancashire Fusiliers and the 9th Northumberland Fusiliers made limited progress and pushed forward. On the left, the Welsh Fusiliers and Royal Irish had a harder time taking and holding the quadrangle and wood trenches. It was on this day that Siegfried Sassoon carried out one of the most memorable events I've ever read of the Great War. Hyped up from the assault and capture of Quadrangle Trench, which was littered with German dead and taking sniper fire. Sassoon and a fellow soldier named Kendall continued further down the trench towards Mamet's wood. The following is taken from his memoir, appropriately titled Memoirs of an Infantry Officer. Being 
In an exploring frame of mind, I took a bag of bombs and crawled another 60 or 70 yards with Kendall close behind me. The trench became a shallow groove and ended where the ground overlooked a little valley along which there was a light railway line. We stared across at the wood. From the other side of the valley came an occasional rifle shot and a helmet bobbed up for a moment. Kendall remarked that from that point, anyone could see into the hole of our trench on the slope behind us. I said we must have our strong post here and told him to go back for the bombers and a Lewis gun. I felt adventurous and it seemed as if Kendall and I were having great fun together. Kendall thought so too. The helmet bobbed up again. I'll just have a shot at him, he said, wriggling away from the crumbling bank which gave us cover. At this moment, Fernby appeared with two men and a Lewis gun. Kendall was half kneeling against some broken ground. I remember seeing him push his tin hat back from his forehead and then raise himself a few inches to take aim. After firing once, he looked at us with a lively smile. A second later, he fell sideways. Blotchy marks showed where the bullet had hit him just above the eyes. The circumstances being what they were, I had no justification for feeling either shocked or astonished by the sudden extinction of Lance Corporal Kendall. But after blank awareness that he was killed, all feelings tightened and contracted to a single intention. To settle that sniper on the other side of the valley. If I had stopped to think, I shouldn't have gone at all. As it was, I discarded my tin hat and equipment, slung a bag of bombs across my shoulder, abruptly informed Fernby that I was going to find out who was there, and set off at a downhill double. While I was running, I pulled the safety pin out of a Mills bomb. My right hand being loaded, I did the same for my left. I mention this because I was obliged to extract the second safety pin with my teeth, and the grating sensation reminded me that I was halfway across and not so reckless as I had been when I started. I was even a little out of breath as I trotted up the opposite slope. Just before I arrived at the top, I slowed up and threw my two bombs. Then I rushed at the bank, vaguely expecting some sort of scuffle with my imagined enemy. I had lost my temper with the man who had shot Kendall. Quite unexpectedly, I found myself looking down into a well-conducted trench with a great many Germans in it. Fortunately for me, they were already retreating. It had not occurred to them that they were being attacked by a single fool, and Fernby, with presence of mind which probably saved me, had covered my advance by traversing the top of the trench with his Lewis gun. I slung a few more bombs, but they fell short of the clumsy field gray figures, some of whom half turned to fire their rifles over their left shoulder as they ran across the open toward the wood, while a crowd of jostling helmets vanished along the trench. Idiotically elated, I stood there with my finger in my right ear and emitted a series of view hellos, a gesture which ought to win the approval of people who still regard war as a form of outdoor sport. Having thus failed to commit suicide, I proceeded to occupy the trench. That is to say, I sat down on the fire step, very much out of breath, and hoped to God the Germans wouldn't come back again. Robert Graves had another take on Sassoon's story. From his own memoir, Goodbye to All That, he wrote, 
Sassoon distinguished himself by taking, single-handed, a battalion frontage, which the Royal Irish Regiment had failed to take the day before. He went over with bombs in daylight, under covering fire from a couple of rifles, and scared away the occupants. A pointless feat, since instead of signaling for reinforcements, he sat down in the German trench and began reading a book of poems which he had brought with him. When he finally went back, he did not even report. Colonel Stockdale, then in command, raged at him. End quote. Apparently, Sassoon's commander chewed him out, but good, because Sassoon had held up a British artillery barrage for three hours because Tommies were reported seen in the target area. But Siegfried maybe was just trying to get some personal time after that whole incident. I don't know. Jury's out. During the day of the 5th of July, the 7th Division was relieved from the battlefield. It had been fighting since the 1st of July and was thoroughly exhausted. Relieving the 7th was the untested 38th Welsh Division. Another unit of Kitchener's new armies, this division of eager but untested Welsh volunteers had been in the trenches at Neuve-Chapelle and Givenchy for the past six months which were now quiet sectors of the Western Front. They'd arrived in France with little to no rifle training, rifles being in short supply for training throughout 1915, and no training whatsoever in trench warfare. Commanding officers figured the men from Wales would learn on the go once they reached France. A brainchild of David Lloyd George, Welshman and British liberal politician, who went from Chancellor of the Exchequer to Minister for Munitions, to Prime Minister. The 38th Welsh Division was made up entirely of Welsh recruits who'd signed up in the beginning months of the war. Officers of the unit had a very high degree of politicization, with many of them gaining positions due to favors being repaid or knowing someone in the right place, rather than, say, ability to do the job. Ivor Phillips, the commander of the 38th, and himself, a former MP, gained his command thanks to Lloyd George putting him there. So the 38th wasn't the best unit to be stepping into the line at the Somme. Sassoon's company was relieved on the night of the 5th by a jostling company of exclamatory Welshmen. They were mostly undersized men, and as I watched them arriving at the first stage of their battle experience, I had a sense of their victimization, visualizing that forlorn crowd of cocky figures under the twilight of the trees. I can believe that I saw then, for the first time, how blindly war destroys its victims. The sun had gone down on my own reckless brandishings, and I understood the doomed condition of these half-trained civilians who had been sent up to attack the wood. And attack it, they would. Ready or not, the men of the 38th Welsh were prepping to be part of a two-pronged assault scheduled for the 7th. Simply put for us here, the 38th Welsh would attack Mamet's wood at the Hammerhead and take its eastern half, and the adjacent 17th Division would take its western half. The two divisions would link up in the Little Forest and then push north to clear it out. Throughout the 6th, 
Preparations went on for the attack, and at the same time the Welshmen and Englishmen worked on improving their new trenches against the expected German counterattacks. The Germans, though, never did attack. They were content to simply shell their enemy's new front line from one end to the other. So the battle zone rumbled and lurched as shells landed with bone-chilling whistles and rocking explosions. On the western side of Mummet's Wood, the 17th Division made a preliminary attack at 2 a.m. on the 7th in order to clear Quadrangle Support Trench, a position behind the now-taken Quadrangle Trench. Despite a preparatory artillery barrage, the assaulting Northumberland and Lancashire men found themselves pinned down by heavy machine gun fire in front of uncut barbed wire. It got worse when elite German troops, who'd been getting ready to attack their attackers, now rose out of their trenches and advanced into no man's land. The British were forced to pull back, and a German counterattack hammered at Quadrangle Trench. The British replied to the failure of their preliminary attack with a 90-minute bombardment of the Quadrangle Support Trench area and a second attack set for 8 a.m. But fresh units were late in arriving at their jump-off points. When they did go over the top, the barrage was over and they were simply mowed down by German machine gun teams in front of them and inside Mamet's wood. In short order, the 12th Manchester's took 545 casualties, laying a carpet of dead or screaming men in front of the Germans. Confused fighting continued throughout the day as rain showers kept the battlefield soaked and soggy, and wrong messages that quadrangle support had been taken by the Tommies led to new attack orders being issued by 15th Corps Command for the evening. In the east, Brigade General Evans of the 38th 115th Brigade reluctantly launched two battalions at the Hammerhead at 8.30 on the 7th. BEF artillery had pounded the wood, but a promised smokescreen never arrived. The raw troops of the 11th South Wales Borderers and the 16th Welsh battalions went over the top and down the incline. Hell opened its doors. They ran headlong into withering machine gun fire from Flatiron and Sabo copses to their north. Shortly thereafter, machine gun teams from Mamet's Wood opened up on them from their front. The enfilading fire cut down the green troops by the dozens, even as incredible leaders like Major Angus of the 16th Welsh pushed their men forward, making targets of themselves to the machine guns in order to keep the attack moving. But the men went to ground 400 yards in front of the hammerhead unable to advance under such terrible fire. Both Welsh battalions stopped and attempted to dig in right there in the open. By mid-morning, the Germans had zeroed in on them and were hitting them with artillery and machine gun fire. Another Welsh battalion, the 10th South Wales Borderers, were sent up against Corps orders to reinforce them. British artillery came raining in at a quarter to eleven. It was supposed to shell the edge of Mamet's wood, but a number of shells landed on the Tommies stuck in the open, and the rest smashed into the wood. Men were blown to bits by their own artillery. The earth rumbled, and trees shook, shivered, or split as artillery rounds punched into the wet earth and forest. 
Through the bombardment, the two attacking battalions kept pushing forward against their own falling shells and the enemy's machine guns. Any gains had to be measured in mere meters. The men of the 10th South Wales borderers called up to support were hours late in arriving. Heavy rains came and the trenches and the fields were quagmires of heavy and cloying mud. In the early afternoon, they reached their comrades in the open and shell-cratered fields and pushed their own attack forward. It, too, was cut down by the same crisscrossing machine gun fire, and their commander was fatally wounded. A third attack was planned by the 15th Corps for the 115th Brigade that evening, after yet another bombardment of the hammerhead position. General Horn and his staff were not pleased with Major General Phillips' division, indicating they needed to have more drive and determination if they wanted to succeed. Brigade General Evans and his aide, a Captain Thruellen Wynne Griffith, worked to coordinate this next attack to ensure the men went in under the protection of the artillery barrage. The third bombardment started at 4.30 p.m., but even by 5.15, the battalions in the fields were still 250 yards away from the edge of Mamet's wood and under retaliatory fire from the Germans. Griffith wrote later, Men were burrowing into the ground with their entrenching tools seeking whatever cover they might take. Wounded men were crawling back from the ridge. Men were crawling forward with ammunition. No attack could succeed over such ground as this, swept from the front and side by machine guns at short range. An hour and a half later, the third attack was called off, along with an evening attack for the 17th Division to the west of the wood. Rain came and stayed, making movement an exhausting job. 15th Corps' leadership, six miles behind the front line and ignorant of the battlefield's conditions, was incensed at the day's failure. In particular, they were ticked off with the 38th Division, whose battalions were relieved in those fields just outside Mamet's Wood. All the way at the top, General Haig was also harsh on the Welsh, writing in his diary that they had not advanced with determination to the attack. Great leadership principles at work here. The 38th Welsh Division had gained practically no ground, yet had lost 400 men. Killed that day were two sets of brothers, both serving in the 16th Welsh. Lieutenants Arthur and Leonard Tregaskis went down within minutes of each other, one rushing to the aid of the other. Privates Henry and Charles Morgan in A Company both died together as well. A third pair of brothers would also meet their end here in this godforsaken wood. Private Albert Oliver died on the 7th of July. His brother Ernest would outlive him by three days, dying inside Mamet's wood on the 10th. On the western side of the wood, another attack was launched by the 17th Division against quadrangle support and wood trenches. Three battalions went over the top at 8 p.m. after a 30-minute artillery prep. The Germans quickly called in defensive fires that cut off communications and blasted holes in the infantry. The attack was destroyed, and nothing was gained. 
15th Corps had hoped to have Mametz Wood wrapped up by the night of the 7th so that they could strike at the German second line. They were nowhere close to that. It wasn't just this Mametz Wood. Contomaison and Trons Wood on either side also were proving tough nuts to crack. On the 8th of July, the 17th Division threw a fourth attack at the Quadrangle Support Trench. But the attacking 7th Borderers and 7th Green Howards who made the attack found themselves in knee-deep mud that exhausted them and enfilading fire that killed them. That attack failed. A 5th attack that was supposedly in conjunction with the 23rd Division on their left was also launched. But the 23rd Division had no plans whatsoever to attack and didn't. These battalion and half-strength battalion attacks were getting nowhere, yet it seems no one thought to try things differently. To men like Lieutenant General Horn and General Haig, the failure of these attacks weren't their fault. It was their troops' fault. There was no sense of owning your mistakes here. And hint, if you're a leader in any capacity and your team fails, newsflash, it's your fault. Rather than try to push forward in coordinated assaults using strong forces, they advocated these small piecemeal attacks that the Germans just mowed down regularly. This was a problem with the whole Somme operation at this point. An example of this is when on the 8th, Horn, disappointed with Major General Phillips' command of the 38th Welsh, stepped in to micromanage preparations for an attack he wanted on Strip Trench. Rather than an entire battalion, as the battalion commander was prepping, there was to be a company-size attack. In a battle where companies were wiped out in one or two machine gun bursts, this idea comes off as ridiculous. The attack wound up being postponed to the 9th when Horn had a tense meeting with Phillips at the latter's headquarters. The next day, Major General Ivor Phillips was fired and sent packing for England. Phillips had been in combat operations for two days and was found extremely wanting. 7th Division's Major General Watts was called in to take over the 38th. Phillips didn't get much of a chance to prove himself, but it wasn't like failure stopped his career either. Lloyd George secured Phillips a job at the Ministry of Munitions before too long, and Phillips was then knighted in 1917. Because, you know, failing upwards and all that. Another interesting aspect of British leadership at Mametz Wood is the role of General Rawlinson, and the fact that he really played no role. Rawlinson didn't believe Mametz Wood to be a necessary precursor target before hitting the German second line, and he left its capture up to the Corps command overseeing the operation. Haig, though, thought it was indeed very important, and he bypassed Raleigh to be in direct communication with Horn at 15th Corps. This seems to add an extra layer of communication channels that further muddied an already stinking and muddy shell hole. On the western side, still trying to take a preliminary target before they tackled the wood, the 17th Division threw a 7th attack on the Quadrangle Support Trench on the 9th. The 
23rd Division was again supposed to attack on the left as well. British artillery had pounded the area with artillery for over an hour, yet it was the mud that did in the attacking Tommies. Exhausted in knee-deep mud that was described as being like sticky glue, they made easy targets for the haggard German machine gun teams operating from the sides of the attack front. This attack failed. Already, there were thousands of casualties, and only a handful of British soldiers on patrol had as yet entered Mamet's wood. But new plans were being drawn up for the next day, the 10th of July. Without a trace of irony, Lieutenant General Horn complained that 17th Division attacks were made in twos and threes, a line taken from a German prisoner's debrief. Horn had also received outdated information saying the Germans were withdrawing from the wood, and he used this to push the idea that it was just the men on the ground who needed more determination to get the job done. Without any coordination with its neighbor to the right, the 17th Division would attack the quadrangle again for the eighth time at 11.40 p.m. on the night of the 9th. The 17th Commander, Major General Pilcher, was being given space to do things his way. The attack went in at the right time, a nighttime assault that saw Tommies cover their bayonets in mud to hide any possible moonlight reflections. What followed was an all-night fight that saw the 8th South Staffordshires enter Quadrangle Support Trench and battle it out hand-to-hand with Germans of the 11th Company, 122nd Reserve Infantry Regiment. Late in the dead of the night, the Staffordshires were forced to pull away when they saw they were fatally unsupported even by adjacent battalions. The 8th South Staffordshires lost near 220 men in just a few hours. The 38th Welsh Division's attack for the 10th was scheduled for 4 a.m. Again, there was no coordination between the divisions, and again, this was why the Germans could routinely mop the floor with them. Attacks like this could be dealt with one at a time. They weren't unstoppable pressure on the whole German line that would stress and break it. The 38th would attack Mamet's Wood from the south and southeast this time with four battalions supported by several machine gun teams. The Welsh would also be supported by two artillery preps. The first would bombard the German front line at 3.30 a.m., and the second barrage would creep through the entire wood in timed lifts starting at 4.15. Facing the 38th were Germans of the 2nd Battalion of the Lair Regiment, a unit of crack soldiers well-suited for the difficult task of holding the wood. British artillery crashed in at the promised hour, lighting individual trees as shells burst in the dark gloom of the forest. The artillery was made even more deadly by chance, since when the shells hit a treetop, they'd burst, sending a rain of metal and wooden splinters downwards. In the dark trenches across from Strip Trench, on the left of the 38th's attack front, the men of the 16th Royal Welsh Fusiliers sang hymns together and then listened as their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Carden, spoke to them. Boys, he said, make your peace with God. We are going to take that position and some of us won't come back. 
but we are going to take it. The attacking battalions all went over the top separately, some early, some late. The 16th left their trenches late and thus missed the cover of the barrage. The Germans put out an ungodly amount of machine gun fire. In the rush across the open ground, Lieutenant Colonel Cardin had attached a handkerchief to his walking stick to show his men where he was. The Germans saw him and shot him down. Cardin kept on until he reached the edge of Mamet's wood with his men, at which point he was hit again and died. His men went on and entered the smoke-filled and shattered forest, however. The Welsh were in Mamet's wood. To the right of the 16th was the 14th Welsh Battalion, better known as the Swansea Pals. They got across the open ground with relatively few losses, having moved in close behind the barrage. They too entered Mamet's wood. On the far right of the attack was the 13th Welsh Battalion, and it took them three assaults through withering machine gun fire to reach the wood. A Sergeant T.J. Price later recalled, As the barrage started, we moved off in quite an orderly fashion. The tension and noise cannot be described. What with the traction of shells through the air and the noise of explosions all around us. Men were falling in all directions due to intensive machine gun fire coming against us. How we got to the wood, I do not know. But we got there and entered it for a short distance before the Germans came at us, head on. Once they were in, they could only move through where the artillery had blasted holes in the forestry as the rides were all sighted by German machine guns. At 4.30 a.m., the 10th Welsh moved into the front line and hit the hammerhead position on the eastern end of Mamet's Wood. The entry here was made easier when a second Lieutenant Cowie single-handedly took out a German machine gun nest. He was killed shortly afterward, but the 10th Welsh entered the wood and later linked up with the other Welshmen inside. The 38th Welsh Division was in the wood after what seemed like a terrible forever. What followed now on the morning of the 10th of July was confusion. Casualties amongst the officers were extremely high, and with this being the men's first combat actions, it was an apocalyptic baptism of fire. The battalions inside the wood became jumbled together as British and German shells smashed into the wood and killed friend and foe alike among the shattered tree stumps and fallen timber. It was an otherworldly nightmare inside Mamet's wood. Captain Wynne Griffith wrote of the state of the wood in his memoir, Up to Mamet's. Quote, Heavy shelling of the southern end had beaten down the young growth, but it had also thrown trees and large branches into a barricade. Equipment, ammunition, rolls of barbed wire, tins of food, Gas helmets and rifles were lying about everywhere. There were more corpses than men, but there were worse sights than corpses. Limbs and mutilated trunks, here and there a detached head, forming splashes of red against the green leaves, and, as an advertisement of the horror of our way of life and of our crucifixion of youth, one tree held in its branches a leg with its torn flesh hanging down over a spray of leaf, end quote. 
Machine gun and rifle fire tore through the air. Grenade bursts shattered eardrums and nerves as Frontschwein and Tommy tried to take the, each other out. Shell bursts in the trees added to the terror as down on the ground Germans and Welshmen killed and were killed in return. There were several cases of friendly fire as men lost all sense of direction in the smoking gloom of the thick forest. Amid the smoking shell holes and shattered trees and the still dense undergrowth, the Tommies inside worked to regroup start clearing this damned place. A passage from the writer and artist David Jones, then serving in the 15th Royal Welsh Fusiliers, and who went on to write in parentheses, seems to sum up the confusion inside Mamet's wood that day. Who's these 30 in black harness that you could see in the last flash, great-limbed and each helmed, if you could pass throughout them and beyond, and fetch away the bloody cloth, whether I live, whether I die. But which is front? Which way is the way on? And where's the corporal? And what's this crush and all this shoving you along? And someone shouting rhetorically about remembering your nationality. And Jesus Christ, they're coming through the floor, endthwart and overlong. Jerry's through on the flank, and beat it! That's what one said as he ran past. Bosch is back in strip trench. It's a monumental bollocks every time. And but we avoid wisely, there is but death. Lance Corporal Baines, sweating on the top line, reckoned he'd clicked a cushy getaway. But Captain Cadwallader holds the westward ride, and that's torn it for the Dodger. Captain Cadwallader is come to the breach full of familiar blasphemies. He wants the senior private. The front is half right. And what whore's bastard gave the retire? And... Through, on the flank, my arse, Captain Cadwallader, restores the excellent disciplines of the wars. By early morning, the first objective, the first east-west ride from the south of the wood, had been reached. More British troops were brought in, and the confused situation continued. At the hammerhead, a German machine gun team got back inside and wiped out a company of Tommies before anyone could do anything about it. Outside, more Germans could be seen at Flat Iron Cops getting ready for a counterattack. In the hellish environment of the wood, some British troops could be seen panicking and taking off towards the rear. Under heavy fire, the Welshmen of David Jones, 15th Royal Welsh Fusiliers, advanced into the hammerhead. As they moved in, the Germans launched their counterattack. Men shouted and screamed. Rifles cracked. Men fell. Men ran, some away from the fighting. Shells wailed and whistled as they came in. Men were blown apart in the explosions. Trees screeched as they split from artillery impacts. Men disappeared. To the west, the 17th Division launched yet another costly attack at Quadrangle Alley, but were unable to make any progress. Major General Pilcher, commander of the 17th, decided to wait and see what the 38th could do in the forest. Major General Watts, commander of the 38th now, called in his 115th Brigade to reinforce the attack. The 10th South Wales Borderers were to sweep the hammerhead of Germans from south to north, and the 17th Royal Welsh Fusiliers would go right up the central ride of the wood also 
in a south to north direction. The attack went in at 4.30 p.m. On the western edge, wood support trench was finally breached by the Tommies. And despite the chaos and confusion, by 6.30 p.m., the Germans had been bloodily ground out of everywhere but the northernmost 40 yards of Mamet's wood. Emlyn Davies of the 17th Royal Welsh Fusiliers described inside the wood as he saw it in the afternoon. Quote, Gory scenes met our gaze. Mangled corpses in khaki and field gray. Severed heads and limbs. Lumps of torn flesh halfway up the tree trunks. A Welsh fusilier reclining on a mound. A red trickle of blood oozing from his bayoneted throat. A South Wales borderer and a German locked in their deadliest embrace. They had simultaneously bayoneted each other. A German gunner with jaws blown off, lay against his machine gun, hands still on its trigger, end quote. Middle Alley, a trench at the northern edge of Mamet's Wood, began to open up machine guns on any exposed British man, sowing more confusion and terror. By 8 p.m., the exhausted Welshman got the order to pull back within the wood two to three hundred yards. They didn't know it, but across the darkening no-man's land inside the wood, the Germans across from them were just as equally exhausted, having been under near-constant shelling for days on end now. As the day ended, the fighting did not. Wood's support trench was hit by troops of the 17th Division, and after a brutal fight, it was taken at 11 p.m. Fighting continued unabated in the hammerhead as well. The South Wales borderers finally wrenched it from the Bosch at 5.30 the next morning. Where there wasn't fighting, the night was spent in panic bursts of rifle and machine gun fire shot at any movement seen or felt in the murk. Further to the left, Comte Maison also fell, and this sealed the fate of Quadrangle Support Trench, which was abandoned by its defenders in the night. With the capture of these two trenches, the 17th part in the battle was over. Between the 1st and the 11th of July, the 17th Division took 4,600 losses, almost all of them in the quadrangle trench system. In the early morning, Brigade General Evans of the 115th Brigade went into Mamet's Wood to reorganize the defense. He was rewarded by two orders to attack and almost bought the farm himself when British shells began falling short and one almost got him. Evans refused to attack unless he thought it appropriate to do so. The Germans, however, thought it appropriate for sure. Through Middle Alley, they deftly funneled a thousand men into the northern edge of Mamet's Wood during the night. The 11th of July saw more confused fighting amidst more terrible shelling of the forest. In the afternoon, the British and Germans got caught up in an artillery duel that had British troops again hit heavily by rounds falling short. As the day turned to night, there was confused artillery barrages that required the Tommies to pull back to the first defense line. The Germans followed and probed the defenses. But when they hit a wall, they pulled back and simply shelled Mamet's wood from one end to the other. 
During the 11th of July, the 21st Division moved in to relieve the now-worn-out 38th Welsh Division. Northumberland Fusiliers of the 21st then mopped up any remaining resistance by noontime on the 12th of July. The Germans counterattacked one more time on the 13th, but when that was shot into pieces, they seemed content with just shelling the place heavily. And so, the battle for Mamet's Wood came to an end. With Mamet's Wood secured on the 12th of July, two of the three objectives needed to secure the jump-off point for the next big attack had been taken. Contomaison and the Wood had been taken from the enemy. Tronswood would fall to the British grinder two days later, the same day the next great attack on the Somme would take place. The 38th Welsh Division had been rotated out of the battlefield, and unlike many, many other British divisions, it did not return back to combat on the Somme. Its mixed performance at Mamet's Wood and its subsequent exile stained it with a label that the men of the division had bolted had panicked and fled the front lines. True, some men had. But similarly, we also saw Major Loden Shan's men not wanting to leave the trenches at Freecourt during the 1st of July attacks. So these weren't isolated incidents. As has also been pointed out, these Welsh civilians in uniform had also pushed Germans from the Lair Regiment out of Mamet's wood. The men of the 38th Welsh Division would later redeem themselves on Pilkham Ridge in the Ypres salient the next year. But the fact that it was the 21st Division that pushed through the last attack and cleared the wood stung. For men like Wynne Griffith, whose brother Watkin lay dead and unrecovered somewhere in the cursed wood, it too was cold comfort. Quote, Added to the burden of fatigue and grief, we were governed by a dark feeling of personal failure. Mamet's wood was taken, but not by us, it seemed. We were the rejected of destiny, men whose services were not required. The dead were the chosen, and fate had forgotten us in its eager clutching at the men who fell. They were the richer prize. They captured Mamet's wood, and in it they lie. End quote. With Contomaison, Mamet's wood, and Tron's wood captured or on its way to being captured, the pieces were in place to make the next move planned by Raleigh. Already, guns were being positioned in and around the stumps of Mamet's wood to extend their range. Bazentan Ridge was going to be wiped clean of Germans. And that will be saved for the next episode. And this episode here is done. How I got it done on Christmas Eve morning, I don't know. Uh, at some point uh, in the recording, you can probably hear me say wifle instead of rifle. And you can probably also hear my daughter singing in the background. This is why I typically record around midnight or one o'clock in the morning. It's like the only quiet time here. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so I hope 
all of you out there have great holidays with your loved ones. This really is the best season of the year. I myself have got a few days off, so I'll be digging into research for the next episode shortly. Hopefully I can get the next episode out in less than four weeks. Pray for me. So, as always, I've got to get my plug in. Please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes. The more reviews, the more visible the podcast becomes. And that, of course, is an awesome thing. If you're still feeling the spirit of the season and would like to help support the podcast with a financial contribution, there is a PayPal button right on the website where you can make a donation of your choice. The website is www.firstworldworldpodcast.com. Donations go towards the purchase of new materials, books mainly, and keeping our server overlords very happy. I'd like to thank everyone who has already contributed. If you cannot contribute financially and still want to help, it's all good bros and broettes. Consider doing a review on iTunes, like I just said. These reviews, really, they're really good as gold for the podcast. Leave a starred review if you're too busy to write. No worries, I totally understand. Even star reviews help us to keep moving on up. Okay. Any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to, to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook or on Twitter at, at World War One Podcast. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.